Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Um, can you guys stand? And we're going to read, I'm going to read the passage, and we've been doing this um, for a while now as a church to acknowledge that God's words mean more than our words. They mean more than my words. These are the most important words that will be spoken today and that we're grateful that God's given us his word. So I'm going to read this and then um, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and you guys are going to say uh, you're going to express your gratitude. And you can say thanks be to God or you can cheer. You can do whatever you want to. All right. Uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up, cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good job. You guys can have a seat. Um, This uh, passage is one that in in thinking through um, this series, uh, I've thought about for a long time, and it's thick. There's like some bombs that he drops in this passage, and there's probably a handful of sermons in this passage. I'm only going to give one, but there are a handful. So be subject to every human institution. We could talk about that for a while. Don't use your Christian freedom as an excuse to do the wrong thing. I found myself thinking about that a lot, about Christian freedom, and then how do I use it as an excuse to slack off and to do the wrong thing? That's a whole sermon. And honor everyone. Like in our cultural moment, honor everyone has rung in my ears, and I'll probably camp out the most there. But the the letter, Peter's letter, is uh, turning towards Um, talking about the church's posture towards the culture that we live in. So how do do we as Christians that believe something, if you're a Christian, you believe things fundamentally different than people that aren't Christians. And that's not pejorative. It's just a statement of fact that, that Christianity sees the world because Jesus has risen from the dead in a different way than, than the culture around us. And so we don't think that we're here because, because our planet happened to be in the right place and a random set of mutations led to us being here and it's just a random collection. Of, we don't believe that. We believe that God sovereignly, you know, divinely um, ordained that we would be here right now and created us. Those are two completely different ways of looking at the world. We don't, you know, if you ask people, people are fundamentally good or fundamentally bad, most will say people are fundamentally good, which honestly doesn't go along with being a random collection of atoms because there's no good and evil if it's just a random collection of stuff and we're not fundamentally anything, but that's how people, that's how we think. Um, but but Christianity says that we're, we're made in the image of God for tremendous good, but have a fundamental flaw that we can't fix called sin. It's like a cancer that we can't cure and Jesus needs to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. We don't we don't live lives seeking to glorify ourselves or satisfy ourselves. And we probably do more than we ought to, right? But that's not what God calls us to. We're called to live lives that glorify him and satisfy him. And in the process of losing our lives to do that, sacrificing to do that, we'll f- he'll give us life indeed. Those are radically different ways of looking at the world. And Dan leaned into this last week that your exiles here, this is not home. 
Um, you are made for a different world, and, and that's, not, that's not meant to be condescending or pejorative. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but you're called to a different kingdom. You play by a different set of rules, and people are going to look at you in a different way. So he's turning the letter, and when I say posture, I've started using this word probably about a year ago in leadership meetings about what's our posture towards culture. So do we as the church, are we in a, in a fighting posture, ready to, you know, to go all, come on, let's fight, let's fight some culture wars. Is it that our posture should be that we just lay down, you know, we just kind of lay down and get run over and do whatever you want. Is that what our posture is? Our posture, let's just run and hide. They're like, peace out, we'll see you guys later. You know, do we run and hide? What's our posture as the church towards the culture? And you can ask yourself, what posture does the church most often take um, towards the culture? And where I'm going to start in this passage is right in the middle of it, because he says something that I think is amazing. Uh, he says, for this is the will of God. How often have you wanted to know what the will of God is? How often do you pray, God, what's your will? There's a few times in the Bible he says it. This is it. This is going to be some amazing news. To put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How excited, can I get an amen? Right, this is like, this is our cultural moment. How much energy is exerted right now trying to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? Now we disagree about who the foolish people are, right? It's the other guy. Uh, there are the foolish people and we are going to put them to silence. It's kind of amazing that, that this is right here in the Bible. Now our mission as a church, does anybody know what our mission as a church is? This is a scary moment for a leader. Helping people come to know and follow Jesus. That's what we want to do. If you don't know Jesus, um, like our, you know, our goal is to introduce you to Jesus the way that the Bible has told us about who Jesus that walked the earth and, and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, who he is, and to know him because he wants a relationship with you. That's our mission. I think you could, you could well be mistaken for thinking that the mission in the Church of America is to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people <laughs> uh, because I feel like the church has spent a lot of energy trying to, um, to do that. Let me ask you this. What has been the church's strategy to silence the ignorance of foolish people? Yell louder. Yes, good answer. Pardon me? Excommunicate them. Yeah, cast them out. There's another one back there. Demonize them. Yes. Pardon me? Yeah, if we go back far enough, we could kill them. Pardon me? Surround the wagons. Yeah, circle the wagons. Isolate. This is good. What else you got? Cast down judgment. Get political. Win an election. Win an election. Win an argument. Uh, win a debate on an online message board. How many of you beat your head against that wall? <laughs> Just stop it. Just stop it. Uh, shame. Guilt, fear, all the things that we've used. What is God's strategy to silence the ignorance of foolish men? It's amazing that God says, yep, there's foolish people out there. Yep, there's ignorance in that. They should be silenced, and you should be the ones to silence them. It's pretty amazing to me that it's in the passage. <laughs> but what's his strategy? Because his strategy to change the world is radically different than the one that I think we typically use. And this passage is it. Like, he's going to lean into what does that mean, and I think it, it couldn't look a lot more different than what we see going on around us, and then the, the question is going to end up being, do we trust his plan? Do we think that'll work? Or not do we think it'll work? Do we trust that he's smarter than, than we are? So, here's it. I'm going to go through this 
kind of the movements of this. Submit to every authority is the first thing he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's just a lot. Every human institution be subject for the Lord's sake, whether it be the emperor supreme or the governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And man, I just think we don't work that way. We think you want to change things. You got to be a rebel without a cause or a rebel with a cause. or You got to stick it to the man, right? That's how you change things. You don't go along with what the man says. You stick it to the man. What are you talking about, God? But be subject. is a, It's a military term. It's found other places in the New Testament. It means to rank yourself under. Like you choose to submit yourself to the authority that's over you. And every human institution, you think this guy didn't know about Trump. He didn't know about Sleepy Joe. He didn't know about Nancy Pelosi or Cocaine Mitch or Obama or Bush or whoever. Like he didn't know about them, but he did. Dan talked about this last week. He's talk, he has the Emperor Nero in mind. Nero is burning you and me, Christians, as candles in his garden for his parties. And he's saying be subject to every human, state, human institution for the sake of the Lord. I think Peter is someplace shaking his head at us sissy American Christians. That's what I think he's doing. And one of the things that's interesting about Peter is we know so much about his life and walking with Jesus and then his life in, in the early church that he's got experiences in his mind when he writes these things years later um, to the churches. And so one of them, and this is a little bit of a caveat to this, is um, after Jesus has, has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and the church is starting to blow up in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit is doing crazy things. And one of them early is that Peter, God uses Peter to heal a man of his lameness and the the leaders of the Jewish leaders the religious leaders who are the political leaders in Jerusalem call Peter and John in before the council um, because they got to stop this whole thing from happening so they call him in and it says when they had set Peter and John in the midst they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this and it says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them rulers of the people and elders so he is going to submit to, the, to every human institution, but he's going to submit with a little bit of an edge. Uh, so he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, that is a great line. If you've really called us in here to see by what power this guy can walk again, if that's really what's going on, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by the, him, this man is standing uh, well before you well. And he does this a handful of times where he just sticks it to the leaders and says, hey, yep, it's the Messiah. I've been waiting thousands of years for him, and you killed him. Way to go. Uh, he doubles down on that, and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among among men by which we must be saved. I don't think that's necessarily a fighting posture. It's definitely not a laying down posture. It's not a going away and hiding posture. It's a standing in truth and grace posture um, that he's holding there. And they debate a little bit. The council does what they should do with them. And it says they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Right? Submit yourself to every human institution. There is a caveat in there. If the human institution tells you to do something that God has told you to do the opposite, do what God told you to do and not the human institution. But he still, in the midst of that, subjects himself to the, to the leadership of, 
this institution that killed Jesus. Um, and in, the, in this passage, Peter explains why we have to do that, because God created the government to keep order. They are to praise good and to punish evil. Um, God creates three institutions. He creates the family, he creates the church, and he creates the state. He created the government. And he created the government so that we don't live in anarchy. And so we can think, well, they're not praising the right good and they're not punishing the right evil. They're not doing things right. God knows that because they're human. And so he knows that we're not going to do things the right way and get a bunch of us together and we're really not going to do things the right way. You know? But the alternative would be anarchy. And honestly, I was thinking about this, like saying that we shouldn't follow the government because they're not exactly what God wants them to do is like saying defund the police. And I guarantee not three of you want to defund the police. You know what I mean? Uh, and and he's, so government is there for a reason. And there's a verse in Proverbs that is amazing where it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Even in the midst of corrupt institutions, God is in charge. And that can be hard news sometimes, but it is good news. And God knows what he's doing. So submit to authority. Uh, he, he goes a little bit further with this down in the passage. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And it's another way of saying this is your decision. It is your choice. There, there is a freedom in Christ. This is the gospel that you could not earn favor with God. God's favor was given to you. And you didn't do enough good things that God said, I'll take that one. Uh, but Jesus experienced death on our behalf so that we could have new life in him. And so we're free. And this is a little bit, it almost sounds scandalous to say, you don't have to worry about your behavior because your, God's acceptance of you isn't based on your behavior. It's based on Christ's behavior on your behalf, right? And so there's a freedom, but it's a dangerous freedom in that. And you submit your behavior to Christ, not because you're trying to prove anything, but because you love him and you trust him and you know him. And, and you want to be more like him. And that's a lifelong process of doing it. But there's, a, there's always a danger that you'll use that as an excuse to do the wrong thing. So submit yourself to every human authority. Then he says, do the right thing. So this is what I left out of that first bit. This is the will of God, that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people in a very specific way, by a very specific means, by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is where we think, that'll never work. <laughs> uh, silence has the imagery of a muzzle. So like they just can't say anything about it. Um, ignorance is a willful, hostile rejection of truth. Foolishness is means senseless or without reason. And even in the, just at the very beginning of this sermon when I articulated ways that were different we just believe things. We see things differently than folks that are not following Jesus. There are just some contradictory things and thinking we're some random collection of atoms that a Darwinian, a purely Darwinian evolution got us here, and, and yet that there's right and wrong, and we should fight for justice. Those two things don't make sense together. Um, but our culture has a great way of holding them, even, even though they don't make sense together. Um, and so he says that not, you're not going to, you're not going to silence this by logic. You're not going to silence it by shame. You're not going to silence it by fear or by protest or by argument. It's not our power that's going to change people's minds. It's God's power. 
and they're going to see it by doing good. I've used this illustration a lot probably in the last um, six to 12 months because it made so much sense to me. But a guy said, you can hold a watermelon underwater as long as you want to. As soon as you let go of it, it's popping back up. And so he said, we as a culture can suppress truth as long as we want to. But eventually, it's going to come back up and manifest itself. The watermelon's going to come back up. And I think that's part of what this is saying. You faithfully, steadfastly follow God and do the right thing. Eventually, truth is going to manifest itself. Um, and if you, if you add to it, this is your mom said, two wrongs don't make a right. If you add to the wrong thing another wrong thing, <laughs> then it obscures. It makes it harder for the right thing to reveal itself. Let me... Um, we flip to another passage. So this is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And that's a hard passage. That's always been a hard passage. And, and there is a bit of like, Jesus, don't you get this? Nice guys finish last. And of all people, Jesus gets that, right? I think that got him on the cross. Uh, but what happens in that passage is it's a power play. The extra mile is, is the, the first mile is a power play. The Roman soldiers could tell you to carry their stuff for a mile, and it's them exerting authority or power over you. And he's saying, just take it the extra, like go another mile. And what you're doing is telling them, your power doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm playing a different game than you are. Make me go as far as you want to. It's not going to matter to me because my source of identity, my source of comfort, my source of satisfaction, my source of meaning in life comes from a different place from the power game that you're playing because we're living by a different set of rules. In the world, that's what power is, and that's how power works, but there's a different world with a different set of rules with a different source of power. And what happens when you say, sure, go ahead and have it, is they wonder like how you could possibly live like that and do it. And it reveals, it reveals through faith that manifests itself in action that there's something else going on. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Um, I mean, Paul, he's gonna, Peter's going to say in a couple passages, always have a reason you know, I always have an answer for people ask you for the hope that you have. Have reasons, you know what I mean? But don't expect that that's the thing that's going to really change people's hearts. Uh, Paul continues, uh, For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's power is revealed in doing good. Um, I think in the midst of this about people that are, that are going through, that are genuinely suffering um, through things, because we're, we're not, uh, not at any level compared to like the church in China 
or the church in the Middle East, the church in Iran is apparently blowing up, but at great risks themselves. I think about, um, uh, not necessarily like I think about things like the civil rights movement, and if you're living in the Jim Crow South, how do you get out of that if you're an African-American person? But then I think about what, what Martin Luther King's strategy was, and it was nonviolent protest based in the ways of Jesus, and the way that it worked was by not combating force with force, um, revealing what was really going on and through the brutality of um of racist folks here the rest of the country catching on to how horrible it was and doing something about it there was a um in one of these commentaries they referenced that and it was a um john john lewis a representative who passed away i think just last year uh talking about selma and how powerful selma was and he said, uh, ABC television cut into its Sunday night movie with a special bulletin news anchor Frank Reynolds came on screen to tell viewers of a brutal clash that afternoon between state troopers and black protest markers and marchers in Selma, Alabama. Then they showed 15 minutes of footage of the attack. The American public had already seen so much of this sort of thing, countless images of beatings and dogs and cursing and hoses. But something about that day in Selma touched a nerve deeper than anything that had come before. People just couldn't believe this was happening, not in America women and children being attacked by armed men on horseback. It was impossible to believe, but it happened. And the response from across the nation to what would go down in history as Bloody Sunday was immediate. And I think it's an example um, of this. You have to be willing to give up the things of the world to demonstrate that God's world is better, and that's when God's power is revealed. And Jesus is the prime example of this. He was killed according to the laws of the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. He was executed for blasphemy, which obviously was false charge, and his trials were bogus trials. Uh, but even Jesus didn't stand up and say, this isn't right. I don't have to put up with this. <laughs> he went all the way to the cross like a, a sheep led to the slaughter, as Isaiah says. And in that, you know, the centurion at the foot of the cross said, surely this was the Son of God. In those early days of the church, it says even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith because God's power was revealed in that. God's power is the thing that's going to change people. Peter, um, again, like going back to his experiences, at the time he writes this letter, what he's experienced years before, another time he gets arrested in the early days of the church, and this time they guard him with 16 soldiers. And in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord breaks him out. And uh, it's a fantastic story. Uh, he goes to um, the house where the church was meeting. And he gets to the gate. And Rhoda, the servant girl, sees him. And she's like, Peter, Peter's here. And she forgets to let him in. She's so excited. So she goes back to the, where the people are praying that God would do something about Peter being in jail. And says, Peter's at the door. And they say, Peter can't be at the door. He's in jail. That's why we're praying. And so Peter's like, hey, uh, they're still looking for me. Can you guys let me in? <laughs> so they're praying. They know where the power comes from. This is so us. They're praying for it, but they still don't expect that it's going to do anything. <laughs> and Peter knows all that. He knows us. He knows where the power is. He knows what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that's what, he's, um, that's what he's calling us to. And by doing good, Sometimes at great cost to us, we're giving God's power space to work and demonstrating faith in something that's bigger than ourselves and trusting that he's going to show up 
uh, oftentimes in ways that we don't anticipate. Here's the last thing that he says and, um, in terms of honoring people. Tell people that they matter to you and to God. So he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And that, again, just the simple honor, everyone, has been rolling through my mind for months. And honor is a word that implies, like, to set a value on. And so I think, like, if you just looked at the discourse in our culture over the last couple years, what, um, what value are we placing on each other? How little honor are we giving in our world today? There's a parallel passage that Dan referenced last week in Titus. Be, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is Paul. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That's kind of what Peter's already said. Then to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I feel like that bar is extremely high. For we ourselves were once foolish, we ourselves were once disobedient, we ourselves were once led astray, we ourselves were once slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That, to me, kind of echoes Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And that seems a little bit condescending, I think. But if it's true that we were slaves to, to sin before we were set free by God, then that's just true. That's the reality of the situation. And um, there's a lot of humility in what Paul is saying in Titus. And I think, man, what if the church was known for being humble? I found uh, this article, in, it was in the New York Times, it was written by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren, who is an Anglican priest, and it's titled, How Americans Can Learn to Live Together Again. Um, so she says, the nation is coming apart, the world is in turmoil, we need to chat about the weather. I mean this sincerely. Then she says, a recent poll by the University of Virginia's Center for Politics showed that 75% of Biden voters and 78% of Trump voters believe that their political opponents have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. That's kind of a startling number. 75% of Biden voters and 78% of Trump voters believe that their political opponents have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. A majority of Trump voters, 52%, and a large minority of Biden voters, 41%, support splitting the country in two along blue and red lines. For all I know, we've been in that spot in different times before and just haven't surveyed it, but it feels different to us, you know. And you compound that, or maybe it's compounded by the fact that we've experienced a tremendous amount of isolation in the last year and a half because of COVID, and I might argue in the last 10 years because of social media, that social media has isolated us in a way that we're just now coming to grips with this. There was a comedian who... Um, <laughs> couple years ago he said uh he said when we were kids you know in your middle school you just pick on kids but in middle school if you're face to face you know told a kid that they were fat you'd see what happened to their face and like how it made them feel and it make you feel bad because they felt bad and something happened there you say it online and it just makes you feel good and then other people laugh along with it and you never see how the kid that you made fun of feels like it is a totally different thing 
uh, it's, it's a little bit like road rage writ large. Because in road rage, well, and that's not even the case anymore. You might get shot if you express too much road rage. But, but generally, you're never going to have to talk to that person. It's also a little bit like yelling at the refs at a soccer game, all right? Just saying, speaking for a friend. Um, that's it. There's a, she quotes um, a guy who wrote another article who said that when you survey these same people on actual policies, the hard lines blur. A majority of Trump voters express support for the nuts and bolts of President Biden's infrastructure and reconciliation plan, for example. Um, he notes that our mutual loathing is based on more emotion than policy. We're dealing with a spiritual and moral sickness. Malice and disdain are conditions of the soul. Just a side note, if you want to see more of that, go to a website called campusreform.com, and these guys will go around to college campuses. They're very magnanimous, they're very polite, and they're funny, and they'll just ask kids' positions, students' positions on things, and just expose exactly this. We have no idea what we're talking about, but we know what camp we're in and what we're supposed to say and what we're supposed to be mad at, <laughs> just where we are right now. Um, and she continues in the article, uh, she says, my greatest example of the magic of trivial conversation came from my late father. He was named the funniest, friendliest person by the local newspaper in the small Texas county I was born in. Really, that's a real award, the funniest, friendliest person. My dad had friends across the political spectrum. He saw a person's ability to find a moment of levity uh, as more important than the person's political affiliation. He saw the demonization of your political opponents as a character flaw, not a mark of purity or passion. It wasn't that he didn't think politics mattered. He lectured me on the importance of voting. He simply thought that cordiality and civil trust, the civil trust it engenders mattered more. Granted, he'd never used the words cordiality or civil trust. He'd call it not taking yourself too seriously and being a good neighbor. As a kid, I watched him perform some kind of daily alchemy, building bridges with simple conversations, crossing racial, political, and ideological lines while checking his mail or depositing a check. He'd call forth a mutual humanity between people. It astonished me then and astonishes me now. I think that's just honoring people and treating people as people. And we do that because God's told us we're not some random collection of atoms that through a series of mutations have evolved to the point where we can just have this meaningful conversation. We've gotten here because God created each one of us. He wove us together in our mother's womb and created us in the image of God. And so even your greatest opponents carry the image of God in them. And God loved them enough to send his only begotten son to save them from their sins. And I think honor can be hard because the more wrong our opponents are, the more right we are. And that is a, a false righteousness that makes us feel really, really good. Um when our true righteousness is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And part of a symptom for the church of this is that the gospel doesn't mean enough to us. Our identity isn't enough. It's not deep enough in the gospel. Uh, do, we, do you want to see change in the world? Do you want our world to change? Uh, do you want to silence the ignorance of foolish men? <laughs> Are you going to do that God's way or keep beating your head against the wall doing it your way? Um, Dan referenced this last week too. In, in the Gospel of John, he describes Jesus as being full of grace and full of truth. And that's a posture. 
full of grace and full of truth. I'm going to, I got a few more minutes here. Um, I mentioned this before, uh, about a year and a half ago, I listened to a podcast with Tim Keller, pastored in New York for 30 years. And he said the biggest challenge facing the church moving forward is that there's four hot button cultural issues that if you view them biblically are going to, two of them will be right leaning priorities and two of them will be left leaning priorities. And so he said the big issues are race, economic inequality, abortion, and sexuality. And, and I, I agree with him on what he thinks to view these biblically. biblically. So, and race, um, uh, racism is a real thing. It's real sin. Racial injustice is a real thing. We're still experiencing it today, and we're still experiencing the consequences of it. The church should be concerned about that because God's concerned about it. Income inequality is a real thing. Um, uh, you know, G- Jesus, I was talking to my daughter about this and just a fascinating conversation, but Jesus was harder on the rich than anybody, you know? I mean, it's easier for um, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven because it's so easy for us to have the illusion of independence with our riches. And so he spoke to that and to be generous and ready to share all your stuff. We should be concerned about that. When it comes to abortion, I believe that, that life begins in the womb, that he's woven you together in your mother's womb. And because of that, my primary concern is about the rights of that, that baby. Um, and when it comes to sexuality, I believe that God has said that sexuality, he made it for a committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman. There's difficult stuff around that, but that's what he made it, what he made it for. And so, but he said, if you do that, then, then your church is going to want you to talk about two of those things, but not the other two of those things, if it has a political whatever. I think we have a fairly diverse church politically, but I've, I mean, we've experienced that at a church. Now, as I thought more about that, I thought how you hold those four positions can run across this spectrum that I think they'll put up. So it can be, you can be biblically uncertain about what you think God says about those four things. You should not be biblically uncertain for long. We can sit down and have a conversation. I'll explain to you because all those things are things I've spent a lot of time thinking, praying, reading about, and, and why I hold those biblical positions. You can, be, you can be apologetic about it. I think as a church, this is where I let us sit for a long time, and that was a huge mistake. We should not apologize for what God says to be true. We shouldn't be, yeah, this is what God says, but sorry, we can't do that. We can be biblically confident and say, you know what? This is our best understanding of the word of God. I am not going to apologize for what God says. I'm going to trust that God knows better than we do, and that can be hard sometimes. If nothing's hard about what you believe about what God says, you are God. (laughs) You have not gotten it right if nothing's hard. You're trying to understand an infinite God with two and a half pounds of gray matter. It's going to be hard sometimes. It's okay. Uh, So biblically confident. You can be obnoxious about it, and that, I think, is where a lot of the church sits in, and that's, I think, where we get in a fight, and, and you can be just downright hurtful about it. Um, I think as a result of, like, being in the wrong places on that spectrum, we haven't honored people. We haven't honored people either be, by not having enough truth and being apologetic or uncertain or by not having enough grace and being obnoxious or hurtful. I was listening to a podcast um, a couple months ago, and it, it was about abortion. It was too two women that on the other view this issue differently than me. But what intrigued me by it was one of the women said her dad growing up always taught her to consider like first or most the best argument of your opponent and just assume your opponent is not ideological opponent is not an idiot and they've got a good argument 
and go off their best argument. Most of the time, what we do is use their worst argument, pretend that they're an idiot and nothing else is going to make sense. Use their best argument. So they tried to do that when it came to um, the issue of abortion. I thought they did a really bad job of it <laughs> as someone who's on the other side. And I, and I think that that issue comes down to when life begins, which I think is an, uh, it's a question that has very emotional implications, but the question itself is not a very emotional question, theologically or scientifically, when life begins. And so uh, my study of that and believing that life begins at conception leads me to think, well, the rights of that baby trump the rights of of the woman in whom God has placed that baby. And I can be concerned about the rights of that woman, but I'm more concerned about the rights of the baby. So when someone tells me as a conservative on that position that I hate women, that really ticks me off because you don't understand my position because it's likely that it's a woman whose rights I'm defending. And so it, but we're not considering each other's arguments. We're not honoring each other and having arguments. There's a way to do that, you know? Um, when it comes to, to LGBTQ issues, um, I think this is one where the church over a long, generations has uh, dehumanized and demonized people, gay people. Treated this sin in a different category when we, where we treat other sins um, and just and treated them poorly. Painted it out as it's just a choice without considering that I think the day someone wakes up and realizes they're, they're attracted to people of the same sex, that's probably a really bit, like a hard day. Even now, I think that's got difficult implications for life and probably not a good day for people. But the church hasn't treated it in that way. We've demonized people, cast them as less, ostracized them, cast them out. Um, and I think part of why that, that issue in our culture has flipped so fast in the last 30 years Part of it is that our culture is, is defending their right to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and do whatever the heck they want to, you know? And so if these people can't do whatever they want to, we can't. So everybody gets to do whatever they want to. Leave us alone, church. But part of it is, is saying, hey, would you just treat them as people? Would you just leave them alone? And I think there's a lack of honor that the church has expressed um, that has been a way of digging her own grave. Uh, and you can honor people and have compassion for them without agreeing them with them or empowering them. Um, but that's trickier than, than being silent or shouting people down. And so we tend to, I don't think we've handled that well. When it comes to race, let me step on all of them. When it comes to race, um, the latest big thing has been cr critical race theory, and I've, I've done a little bit more than dip my toe in this and trying to figure it out. Uh, and this is what I've figured out so far, that I think 95% of people that cite critical race theory don't really know what critical race theory is. And that critical race theory is a really hard thing to figure out what it is. Like I've gone back to Wikipedia articles on Derek Bell, who's the, the African-American professor at Harvard that couldn't get tenure that I think was the genesis of the whole thing. It's just hard to figure out. From what I have read, I don't, I don't agree with the framework of it. I don't agree that there's oppressed and oppressors, and in that framework, oppressors can never get up off the mat. Um, I, I think there's a lot of unbiblical things about it. There are some people I really respect. There's an African-American pastor in Maryland named Tabidi. I can't never pronounce his last name. I met him. He's a, great, he's a great guy. I've known him to be a theologically accurate guy. 
and I've listened to him a little bit on this, and I'm going to keep learning about CRT because he, he affirms it in some ways, and I'm just really curious about why. I honor him and, and want to know, you know, um, but generally I don't. I'll say this about one aspect of it where it's systemic racism, and the, the opponents of CRT seem to have a big problem with systemic racism. That's one where I don't. Jim Crow was systemic racism. When we get a sin individually, and then, we, and then we as people come together and put systems together, it's not hard to systematize a sin. And so it's, it's totally plausible to me that there's systemic racism. And read about the Jim Crow South, and, and you'll know what it is. Is that still happening to some extent? I'm sure it is to some extent. I'm sure it's nowhere near the extent that it was. But I'll say this. Um, the average, the median wealth of, of a white family in America, the median wealth of a family, so including the real estate and investments and all that stuff, is $171,000. The median wealth of an African-American family is $17,000. That's a crazy disparity. What's, just, just drive around Raleigh. What's the poorest part of Raleigh? What is it? What color is Southeast Raleigh? It's primarily African-American. It's black. What's the richest part of Raleigh? Northwest. And it's primarily white. And I'm going to ask you to think about, if you never thought about it, why that's the case. Because I think we just say that is the case. We don't think about why that's the case. And we lived down there for five years in southeast Raleigh. And, um, and I think your answers to that question are pretty limited to either... Well, white people must be smarter than or harder working than African-American people, and so it's the way that it's supposed to be. Or something tragic has happened to create a disparity of opportunity and outcome that hasn't been fixed yet. And it, to respond to that with, well, I didn't do it, is not honor. I think part of it is just the problem is not fixed yet. I don't know what the answer is, but I know the answer is not saying there's no problem. And I think when it comes to honor, like that makes everything muddier, like more complicated to look at it that way. Um, but I think honor sometimes is acknowledging and caring about someone else's circumstance and, um, and the reality of that. Honor everyone. That bar is so high. Engage politically, for sure, with honor. Uh, engage civically with honor. Be informed. Be ready to explain the basis for your convictions with honor. But know the true power lies elsewhere. And part of our problem as a church is that we've had cultural power for a hundred, hundreds, 150 years, where in our culture, the church has been an expectation to be a part of a church. It's been a, a social benefit to be a part of a church. And now it's like a social debit, and it's not an expectation. We've lost that cultural power. I was given blood about a year ago. I give blood at the same place every couple months because I had heart surgery and people need blood. And the same little old lady 
they make you stay there for like 10 or 15 minutes. I'm fine, but I got to eat some Cheez-Its apparently before I can leave. And it's the same old lady that gives the snacks. And, and about a year ago, I went there. We got talking about what I did. And I said, well, I'm a pastor, which is kind of a benign thing to say. She says, you're not a pastor of one of those evangelical churches, are you? I'm like, I just gave blood. Get off my back. And you're like the little old snack lady. That's where we are now. We've lost power. That's, that could be the best thing that ever happened to the church in America. You know why? Because now we need to find the real power. <laughs> Prayer is power. We don't pray enough. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces evil in the heavenly places. And love, honor, is power. Love is power. And when we fight with our arguments or our politics or our shame or our fear, what we're telling God is, that is a stupid plan, God. Love is a stupid plan. Love will never work. Jesus would beg to differ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and sacrificed him, loved you foolishly. And it worked. And it will keep on working. I'm going to ask uh, the band to come back up and we're going to take communion um, as a way of remembering the foolishness of the love that changes us. And is our hope to change our world. So I'd ask you to tear off the top of this and take out the wafer. And um, Jesus said this is his body that has been broken for us, and we do this in remembrance of him. And he gave his disciples the cup and said, this is my blood that's been poured out for you. And we do this in remembrance of him. God, thank you that you are not content with the way things are, that you want things to change, that you agree that there are foolish people who are expressing ignorance and need to be silenced. And your church is the plan and, um, Lord, I pray that you would convict us individually and collectively of ways that our, our plan for doing that is different than God's plan. And it, if there are things we need to repent of, that we would repent, Lord. Um, and that you would help us as people uh, to be people with a posture of grace and a posture of truth. That we would stand firm for the things that you have said are true that we would do that in such a way that expresses um, the honor to the people around us that you have, have given them and that you've called us to, Lord. And that the same love that's changed and is changing us uh, would be seen and would be known 
and would change the folks around us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.